0: By now, I think it should be clear to everybody, Russia is dominating the Ukraine war. The Ukrainian armed forces horrific situation. They are now inducting elderly people into the army. They are inducting pregnant women into the army. We
1: got to talk about the world's Bobby Deol from Animal, (laughs) AKA China.
0: So Xi Jinping is sitting as the emperor. He has got rid of all the opposition. Lots of people have disappeared. What happened to Mr. Alibaba, Mr. Jack Ma? Where is he? We don't know.
1: In your eyes, hmm, how powerful a geopolitical power is Iran truly? Mossad has some idea of something that's going to happen messages are coming out partially out of there the pm of the country is like talking what is happening
0: and now india is conducting anti-piracy operations in the arabian sea region thing is this a drone will cost a couple of thousand bucks maybe and to shoot that down you need a missile that costs multiple million dollars we're seeing drone warfare for the first time in Um, the human story swarms of drones that's what the future of warfare is like
1: what do you think of this whole next phase of american politics
0: the u.s politics is very interesting we have mr biden who's currently the president. He clearly is not capable of running a country. Ms. Kamala Harris would be not a great candidate. So the big heavyweight is Mr. Trump.
1: Abiji Chavala returns on the Ranvish show with another geopolitics special. If you enjoy this combination of AC and RA, this is going to be a spectacular 2024 update for you. It's a very quick fire recap of everything that's happened last year everything that's happening right now and it's also a little bit about the present and future of all our countries and I sincerely hope that it's not just Indians watching this because we've really tried touching upon a lot of different stories that are happening from all over the world but without further ado this is the legend Abhijit Chavda who returns for this geopolitics special on TRS 2024 geopolitics update, courtesy, not of news channels, but courtesy of AC back on TRS. What's up AC?
0: All good. Thank you for having me again on the podcast.
1: Let's do a very, very quick fire geopolitical update, actually. All right. Very quick fire. Let's go over a gist of what's happening for people who've not been that updated and then we can build upon from there.
0: Yeah, this is a very interesting year, 2024. It's a year of elections. We just had the Bangladesh elections. We're going to have the Indian elections, the Russian elections, the US elections as well, and and elections in other places as well. Uh, So it's going to be a very eventful year. We have wars going on. There's a war in the Middle East. There's a war, an older war in Ukraine. There is conflict in various parts of the world brewing. There's China, Taiwan. There's always a flashpoint. There's North Korea that's acting up a little bit. Um, The Middle East could be a problem. India and China... Uh, on the on the disputed border between India and Tibet, we've had some flash some some issues recently. There's always Pakistan, the good old bad boy, you know, the attack dog of other powers. And this Europe, there's the recession in Europe. There is so many so much things happening. Russia is obviously by now. I think it should be clear to everybody. Russia is dominating the Ukraine war. They are in no hurry. They are just sitting there, and the Ukrainian army has destroyed has been destroyed more or less. They are now inducting elderly people into the army. They are inducting pregnant women into the army. The Ukrainian armed forces, horrific situation. Uh, Mr. Zelensky is, sitting, is still sitting pretty in, in Kiev. So there's so much happening right now. And uh, there could be a lot of eventful things happening this year. One hopes there are no new wars and one, hope they, one hopes there is no escalation of existing wars. But uh, yeah, we are moving towards a period of geopolitical uncertainty, chaos. There's Afghanistan, of, of course, sitting out there. There's the Middle East. There's Central Asia also. Interesting place. This is Africa. No one talks about Africa. There have been coups last year in Africa. Where? In, in Niger, for example. In Burkina Faso, there was a coup before that and so on. Um, it, so Africa, the Sahel region, the sub-Saharan, the Saharan region of Africa is essentially a geopolitical chessboard where bigger powers, France... Russia, the U.S etc are playing various geopolitical games. China is always there. it's not it's not far away. So there's a lot happening in the world. I hope there is we don't see a lot of chaos. And obviously there are the elections. and when there are elections, there are, there's always the possibility of foreign interference in various elections. So there could be that. There was an attempt to interfere in the Bangladesh elections and to effect a regime change over there and get Mrs uh, Sheikh Hasina out of power and get the other party, the opposition parties to power did not work out and certain very big powers are not happy about that. They have said this was, this was not, a, not a free and fair election and they could do the same in other elections as well. So we over here, we have to be careful, a lot at stake in various elections. The Russian elections, more or less, we could say that Mr. Putin should win. <laughs> the US elections, God knows what's going to happen. So yeah, a lot at stake.
1: Where do we begin? Right? Which <laughs> part of this body of geopolitics do we actually touch upon first? Hmm. Uh, war? That's a pertinent place to begin. You tell me, what do you think, sir?
0: Let's start in the most unlikely place imaginable. Let's start in Africa. Okay. So in Africa, there is this place called the coup belt of Africa. A coup is a, well, it's, it's, it's a regime change operation in which you typically, there's typically a textbook way of planning and executing a coup in which you take Control of certain key strategic locations in a country. It's typically the communication center. Old days, it used to be the TV channels and all that, the TV station. Then you, you do a decapitation strike on a government, which doesn't necessarily mean killing people, but cutting off the head and replacing it with, with another head so that everything else remains the same, that sort of thing. So, the, this entire region, the Sahara region of Africa, from east to west Africa, is called the coup belt of Africa. And there have been so many coups out there and this place is dominated by france it comes in, in in the the francophone region of africa and we we call this because the french had big colonies huge colonies out there in the past during the colonial era today france controls these regions through remote control how one of the means of doing that is through by using the cfa franc the franc, the CFA franc, it comes in two varieties, two flavors, but it's issued by the French government and the, the bank, the, the National Bank, whichever, I don't remember which one. Look it up, my friends. Uh-huh. The one in France, okay. They mm. issue the currency. They decide the exchange rates. And these nations use that, that, that currency. And they pay a certain amount of money to the to the French for issuing the currency and so on. So essentially, France controls the entire economies of these nations. Okay. And there is a group called ecowasp Grouping of, of, it's an economic grouping of uh, Western African nations. Nigeria is one of the major nations in this. So it's a coalition, which again, one could say is controlled by France. So this region was historically, you know, under French domination, even after the colonial era ended. And France obviously is part of NATO and the dominant force in NATO is the US. So France, you could say is an extension, is controlled by the US to some extent. And France controls this region. So you can see where the con- chain of control comes in. So this region has had lots of coups. It, it, every year, typically you'll see a coup or two. Okay, it's like a, a supernova explosion happening here and there if you look at a certain region of space, that sort of thing. So recently there was a coup in a place called Niger. Now, Niger is a country nobody has heard of. It's called the spelling is N-I-G-E-R, it's called Niger in that's a French pronunciation. That's how I use it. So there was a coup there. Um and this nation, no, probably nobody has heard of it, at least in India, because we don't teach about the geography of Africa. But it's a nation that's rich in uranium. Uranium is a fissile element, which is used in nuclear reactors to produce power. 70% of France's electricity comes from nuclear power. Roughly 70% give or take a little bit. And a significant portion of the uranium that France consumes to generate electricity comes from Niger. And the government that was in power in Niger was uh, friendly to the French. And now there's been a coup last year, 23, And a different kind of government came to power and they ejected the French ambassador uh, and they are pro-Russia and so on. And there's another thing called the Trans-Saharan Gas Pipeline that is supposed to start in Nigeria, go through Niger, go into North Africa and through there to Europe. So we've had the Nord Stream bombings which destroyed the Nord Stream, uh, you know, one of the Nord Stream pipelines because of which that abundant cheap gas that was flowing into Europe and powering the economy suddenly dried out. And now Europe has to import LNG, liquefied natural gas, from the US at three times the price. So just this one coup
1: actually caused this big economic change?
0: So, so I'll tell you what the coup can do. So first of all, the, the French were buying uranium from Niger. at I don't remember what the rate was. It was like a dollar a pound. That sort of thing. And the, the market value is about 500 times more than that. So they were getting essentially free uranium from Niger. Now that's ended. And now it's at the market, market price. Whether it's 500x or 200x, I don't remember exactly. Or interested viewers can look it up. Homework. Hmm. So that's the kind of thing it is. So that cheap, almost free uranium that is flowing into France has ended. Secondly, that, that pipeline, that gas pipeline that was supposed to be built built through Niger may not be built now. Because Niger is not friendly to the European powers. They are more pro-Russia. Okay. And Russia has a significant, uh, you know, um, presence, let's say, let's say presence in the Sahel region, in the Saharan region of Africa. Uh, It was the Wagner Group led by the late Mr. Prigozhin that used to take care of all of this, you know, various operations and all that. Now it could be other elements of the Russian army or maybe a rebranded version of the Wagner Group that may be in, in, uh, you know, all these activities, part of these activities. But the new government in Niger is pro-Russia and anti-West. So the uranium, the cheap uranium, almost the uranium stopped flowing, that gas pipeline may not happen. And so what we are witnessing in Africa, in all these nations, okay, is a proxy war between the East and the West. The East, I mean, Russia, Mr. Putin's, uh, power, you know, uh, you could say agents, elements, all that, and France and the US. And France, typically, when something like this happens, they intervene militarily. They cross the the, the Mediterranean Sea with warplanes, they send troops, and they typically involve ECOWAS, that coalition, and their soldiers as well, which last happened in Mali, I believe, in Timbuktu and all that, just about a decade ago. But this time France has not intervened. Somehow they have not been able to intervene. They can, but somehow they have not been able to. Maybe somebody more powerful than France instructed them, told them that this time you shall not intervene. And that is bad for the French French economy. I'm not saying that the colonialism is good. What France has been doing is neo-colonialism. But yeah, this time they have not been able to enforce what they have been enforcing for so long. So you can see France slipping away from power in Western Africa, in Central Africa, maybe mainly Western Africa. You can see Russia advancing its interests in this region. This region is rich in resources, tremendously rich rich in all kinds of resources, okay, mineral resources, natural resources, so on and so forth. And wherever you have Russia, you're going to have China, the Chinese have been in Africa for at least 15 years, okay, they have, uh, they are good at, see, the Chinese are very pragmatic, they will not uh, talk about democracy, human rights, freedom, all that, they will work with whoever is in power, the more autocratic the government, the better it is for them, just like the US, the US also prefers dictatorships, as opposed to democracies, so the Chinese, uh, they uh, have been building all this uh, infrastructure in Africa, railways and whatnot, ports and all that, and they use that to extract um, uh, resources out of Africa. Obviously, they pay for that, okay? They don't do the, it the way the East India Company used to do, They steal stuff. They pay for it, but they put autocratic governments in place, dictators in place. They, you know, they nurture those dictatorships, those, those relationships. And the Russians are the muscle, And the guns. The Chinese are the brains behind this and they also have their workers and all that. So the Chinese and the Russians seem to be kind of uh, in in, in a better or more advantageous position in Africa and the West seems to be kind of uh, losing a little bit of ground in Africa. That's what we're seeing. And then we have uh, the expansion of BRICS. So we dealt with Africa a little bit. Now we'll talk about BRICS, various coalitions of nations. We have NATO, we have SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. We have BRICS, we have the Quad, we have I2U2. We have so many more such groupings. We have ECOWAS, we spoke about ECOWAS. So BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. That was the original grouping. This year we've had, I think, four more nations that joined BRICS from January 1. Argentina was supposed to join, but they chose not to join, okay? But uh, Saudi Arabia has joined, which has been a tremendously strong U.S. ally. The UAE, almost our neighbor, they have joined BRICS. I believe that there's two more nations, Ethiopia and one more nation, okay? I'm Ethiopia and who else? I think he's pulled it out. Egypt, Egypt and Ethiopia. There you go. So imagine this. A decade ago, if if you spoke about the Middle East, you could not think of a single country that was... favorably inclined towards India they were all more or less hostile to India at best they would be indifferent towards India today each of these Middle Eastern nations is extremely friendly towards India they are very bullish on the future of India Middle East ties whether it's the UAE whether it is Egypt whether it is Saudi Arabia whether it is Israel so look at that on both sides of the aisle they are friendly towards us Uh, uh, we have a Hindu temple coming up in the deserts of Arabia. It's going to be inaugurated on the 14th of February, if I'm not mistaken. It's coming up in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, in the UAE. And Mr. Modi and, uh, and the Sheikh, the ruler, the leader of Abu Dhabi, Mr. Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, they call each, other's, each other brothers. And Mr. Modi has extremely good relations with Mr. Mohammed bin Salman as well. So MBS, MBZ, both of them are extremely bullish on India. The friendship, not the alliance, but the ties are blossoming. And the very fact that India has been able to resist the Western browbeating, attempts to browbeat India during the Ukraine war and take their side, it has not worked. That has given a tremendous amount of confidence to the Middle Eastern nations. And now India is conducting anti-piracy operations in the in the Arabian Sea region, near the near the Strait of Bab al Mandeb in the in, in the Red Sea, near the Strait of Hormuz, which is uh, which is the Persian Gulf and all that, and that shows what India is capable of. And these nations know that India is not an expansionist hegemonic power. India is not going to turn up in the middle of the night and invade them. We are going to have a very robust relationship, and this has given them a tremendous amount of confidence that they can now perhaps start thinking of no longer sucking up the, to the U.S. And they have more. They have a rising power that is a great friend of theirs and very respectful of Arabic culture and so it's a relationship built on mutual respect. So the UAE and Saudi Arabia are part of BRICS now, can you believe it? I mean they get most of their weapon systems from the US, you go to their airports, you will see those big uh, American-made planes over there, they have Patriot missile systems for missile defense, anti-drone defense, anti-ballistic missile defense, these nations are extremely favorably, favorably inclined towards India, so it's a major shift that just one man, Mr. Modi, has brought about in the past decade, in the past nine, nine and a half years. That's what's happened. Uh, so there is that, and then there was the. Uh, then we have had this, uh, uh, this, this conflict in the Middle East, which is uh, we know what happened. Hamas uh, attacked Israel. I mean, that's what happened. I'm just, I am. A neutral, disinterested observer. I'm just saying it as I saw it. Hamas attacked Israel. It's a very big question as to how this was allowed to happen. I mean, Israel has the best defenses in the world, the most uh, state-of-the-art uh, surveillance uh, and, and espionage uh, mechanisms in the world. They have Mossad, they have Shin internal-external intelligence, and yet they could not do anything when these Hamas terrorists cut those wires and uh, brought the walls down with bulldozers and sent paratroopers on paragliders, I mean what were the Israelis doing? So it looks like one could say, if one were naive, that this is the greatest uh, intelligence failure in Israeli history, worse than the uh, Yom Kippur war. But if you look a little bit deeper, it looks very suspicious and very fishy. Okay, so I don't know what actually exactly happened, but this happened. Hamas attacked Israel, Israel attacked Gaza, and we have a conflict that's smoldering hezbollah in in lebanon is also involved to some extent the other arabic nations are also i mean look nations like saudi arabia actually want peace with israel they don't want a conflict in the middle east they are looking forward to development the the king of the, the crown prince of saudi arabia mr Mohammed bin salman has long-term plans of developing the nation making it an ultra modern nation why not he has the resources the money the land why should he not do that The UAE is an extremely forward looking nation. They also want to develop the nation. They want to build more infrastructure. They want to have great, excellent ties with a variety of countries. So these nations, they they desire peace. And yet you have this situation uh, to their west, Israel, Gaza, there's Lebanon, Hezbollah involved. There's the West Bank of the river Jordan, which is between Jordan and Israel. There's the Golan Heights, so much happening there. So this is a new conflict that has suddenly emerged out of nowhere. And right now it's, it's a major flashpoint. One hopes it doesn't escalate. But if it escalates, it can escalate to who knows where.
1: Where is the conflict going right now?
0: Oh, right now the conflict is kind of a frozen conflict. Kind of, for now it's a frozen conflict. There are no advance. There is no advancement of the lines. The lines on the map are kind of the same. Uh, there is a significant IDF presence in Gaza. They have bombed uh, the hell out of certain parts of Gaza. There has been some military activity with Hezbollah, which is from southern Lebanon as well, between Israel and Hezbollah. Gaza, uh, the, the, the uh, Hamas has a tremendous number of very crude but effective missiles, they've built up those. They've built a large number of tunnels that the Israelis apparently were oblivious to. Hezbollah apparently has a lot of missiles. Then there's the Iranian factor, there's the Houthis in, this, in, in Yemen who have suddenly acquired a large number of very sophisticated drones. There was a drone attack in Abu Dhabi. On the airport, they had to activate Patriot, the Patriot missile defense systems. The thing is, this a drone will cost a couple of thousand bucks maybe to acquire. That's that's the cost of this this equipment, and to shoot that down, you need a missile that costs multiple million dollars, millions of dollars. We're so, seeing
1: drone warfare for the first time in oh, the human story.
0: Swarms of drones. That's what the future of warfare is like. And what's the response to that? Let's say you have a aircraft carrier. Okay, let's say you have an aircraft carrier of a large major nation. So this aircraft carrier will have uh, defense systems, missile defense and other defense systems, anti-aircraft defense, anti-missile defense, anti-ballistic missile, anti-cruise missile. And it it will have a ring of warships that are guarding it, destroyers and cruisers and all that. So It's a ring of defense systems, but it's just a numerical certainty. If you throw enough drones at them, it's going to hit. Now, what do you do with this multi-billion piece of equipment? It's so vulnerable. That's why aircraft carriers these days they stay out of conflict zones. They stay at a distance, at a standoff distance. And they hope nobody launches a ballistic missile at them. Because ballistic missiles are travel at way more than hypersonic speeds. Ballistic missiles travel at re-entry speeds. 22, 23, 23 mark. Why, why was there an attack in Abu Dhabi, according to you? Because uh, Abu Dhabi... <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Because see, Abu Dhabi, uh, the UAE, is kind of a Western ally even though it's now part of BRICS as well. But it's kind of a Western ally. The Americans have their own bases, kind of. You could say they have leased certain military bases in this country, including, and in Saudi Arabia as well. So if you have the presence of American military equipment in a country, some, some nations would see that as a fair target. Okay, so that's the sort of thing it is. And the Houthis... If you look at the history of Yemen, they have suffered tremendously for decades at the hands of the West. There's no other way of putting it. Horrific suffering that they have endured. The civilians have obviously borne the brunt of it. Um, There was this conflict that's still kind of on between Saudi Arabia and Yemen in which the Saudi Arabian uh, forces were used to target uh, Yemeni positions. there are various factions in Yemen. There's the Ansarallah faction, the Houthis, and there's the, the, the other faction and all that. So it's pretty complicated. I'll not go into the details of that because there will be a whole different story. But yeah, so the thing is this. Yemen, the Houthis, the Allah faction, they are supported allegedly by Iran. Okay. Hezbollah, again, allegedly supported by Iran. Uh, Gaza, who's that? The, the Hamas, again, Iran. And then you have elements in Syria, uh, Mr. Um, President Al-Assad, who is one could say allegedly supported by Iran. There are groups in Iraq as well that are allegedly supported by Iran. Wherever you have the presence of Shia, Shiite elements, so we know how things are in Islam. I mean, it's very complicated. But if you look at it from a very, very far away perspective, with Shia and Sunni, there are these are the two major sects, major sects of Islam, and Iran is a Shiite country. Okay, so wherever you have Shia populations, you're going to have some influence of Iran. That's typically it's it's a it's a very you know if you were to you were to explain to a twelve year old that's how that's how you you would explain. So you some viewers may remember Mr. Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general who was taken by taken out by the Americans in a, in a drone strike. He was one of their chief. Uh, Agents, one could say, who would go to these countries and give them various kinds of support, whether it is logistical support or financial support or bring in arms, bring in fighters and so on. So there is this entire thing. And Iran, it has acquired recently in the last two, three years, a very sizable Chinese investment. One would say apparently in excess or or in the, in the uh, around the realms of $45 trillion. It's a 25-year strategic deal. And obviously Russia also is involved they are acquiring Shahed drones from Iran in their fight in Ukraine so you can see this this entire axis emerging uh, Iran Russia China now we have the situation in Syria Uh, Syria was overrun by ISIS much of it they were uh, I mean a few kilometers from Damascus at some point in time and Damascus would have fallen Mr. Al-Assad would have fallen but for the intervention of Mr. Putin so now Russia has entered the, the chat, you could say, <laughs> and uh, they, they have uh, bolstered the government of Mr. Al-Assad. They have uh, a naval base, Latakia, I believe, and they have uh, aircraft bases and so on also. So the Russians have stabilized Syria. They have prevented this nation from being overrun by Western proxies. So you have uh, this complicated scenario in the Middle East. The Middle East is always in crisis and the crisis is always orchestrated by, from somewhere far away. Mm. So That's that. Hmm. And I could just go on, but yeah, let's let's move on to something else if you want to. Um
1: okay. In your eyes, Hmm. how powerful a geopolitical power is Iran truly? Hmm. Because if you go to geopolitics 101, it basically boils down to your economic advantages, your resource-based advantages, I would argue your population-based advantages, and your technological advantages. Fair? Anything else you'd like to add to this?
0: I would say it's also it also what also matters is the quality of your leadership and its willingness to take risks beyond your territory and within your territory. Territory, That also matters.
1: You'd say that Iran is a geopolitical power to be considered as an impactful force on the world map? Or is it a puppet for one of the other traditional powers?
0: Mm, that's a good question. So Iran, one could say, is a significant regional power in the Middle East. They can, if they can affect what's happening in Syria. They can affect what's happening in Lebanon. They can affect what's happening in Gaza in the West Bank. They can affect what's happening in Yemen. They can affect things that are happening in Iraq as well. Through
1: their own spy networks and their own...
0: The proxies. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. they've got extensions of their own forces. And they have a significant uh, influence in various countries. And it's not just soft power, it's hard power also. Okay. So th- there is financial support, there is technical know-how, there is logistical support, there is arms and ammunition support. And there's also, you could say, military agents and maybe possibly plainclothes soldiers as well. Possibly. Okay, so Iran is a nation that operates beyond its borders. It is willing to operate beyond its borders. It's willing to take risks. It has a significant... Look, Iran hasn't seen a significant war since the 1980s, the Iran-Iraq war. And they have been developing their military. I'll tell you what, about half of the population of Iran is Persian. About half of it is Azerbaijani or Arab or whatever else. So you could say that Iran is kind of held in place, the government is held in place kind of by, by force. One could say, by force, one could say, one could say it's a police state. Okay, look, for, let me give you a very crude example. You go to New York. Hmm? You will see cop cars everywhere, you will see cops everywhere. You take those cops away for 15 minutes, there's going to be riots in New York, we know that. One could imagine the same kind of thing possibly happening in Iran as well, if you take away all the soldiers and all the cops. So much of the armed forces of Iran, one could say, some would say, are, are used to just enforce law and order and, and, and whatever else within the country. and. And some of that is obviously used for influencing uh, outcomes in other nations. And they have a reasonably sophisticated military industrial uh, complex, they produce very good drones the russians are buying their drones in large quantities they have missiles ballistic missiles cruise missiles of various kinds they have they have uh, drones and, and 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 they have a good uh, they don't have any shortage of arms and ammunition because they have not been involved in any, in any major ruinous war and they have china on their side because china wants iranian oil and energy and obviously it makes sense for russia to also align itself with iran because iran is a pro is is, is an anti us power and the biggest threat to russia today is the us that's how just the the global geopolitical chessboard is loaded right now. So Iran is a significant power, significant regional power in this entire region. They dominate the Persian Gulf region. They can blockade the Strait of Hormuz at any time, which could cut off half the world's energy supplies right there. Right. So they are a significant power. They have a good Navy and so on, and they are willing to take risks. And uh, they're always in the state of alert and state of, you know, kind of slightly paranoid nation, paranoid nation. Everyone's out to get us. I mean, look at what happened to them. There's there's a reason for them to be paranoid. The US used Saddam Hussein's Iraq against Iran to totally destroy Iran. Didn't work. But yeah, both nations were kind of half ruined by that war. And then the Americans imposed terrible sanctions on the Iranians. Medicines in short supply. Everything in short supply. God knows how many Iranians died in that. And even now, the Iranians had signed this deal with the US. What is it called? The, The Iran nuclear agreement which was uh, signed between Mr. Obama, between the regime, Obama regime and the Iranian regime. And Mr. Trump comes to power and he walks back from the agreement. And again, Iran is again a pariah and again, there's a, there are sanctions on them. So they don't trust the West. Once you sign a, an agreement, you've got to honor that. Mm. Right? A deal, a treaty. The mm. treaty was not honored by the US. They walked back on it. So Iran doesn't trust the West and they have good reason not to trust the West. They, and you see what happened to Mr. Soleimani. He was taken out in a drone strike in Baghdad. Uh, the US... They are complaining about India allegedly trying to assassinate somebody on American soil, a terrorist. But they have no, they they are very upset about that. But they are okay with assassinating anybody anywhere. They even assassinated Mr. Anwar al-Awlaki, allegedly a terrorist, maybe a terrorist, and his young son, both US citizens in Yemen. The Americans took them out with drone strikes, their own citizens. They took out Mr. on uh, what's his name Soleimani, they took out Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, Pakistan, we have never seen evidence of that, but th- that's what they claim, and so on. So the Americans can do whatever they want. There's a certain set of rules for them. The set of the same rules don't apply to other nations, other nations have to, uh, you know, dance to a different set of rules and all that. So that's the kind of double standards and hypocrisy that the Americans are renowned for. And that's kind of why they are losing respect in the world today, especially as they because they are a declining power right now. So yeah, but coming back to your question, that's why the Iranians are paranoid. They have good reason to be paranoid. Hmm. It's
1: a version of the best defense is to go on the offense.
0: Yeah, you have to... Yeah. So, like
1: muscle up to get ready. Uh, it seems to me from the outside, cinematically so, that the Middle East is getting ready. At least Iran seems like it's getting ready. At the same time, there is conflict. So I would assume that... Uh, a lot of the powers around the Israel Gaza conflict are also waking up in terms of everyone's on high alert. That's the sense that we get sitting here in India based on the news we consume through media as well as Twitter. Um, uh, are we on the brink of a slight ex- escalation of the conflict or do you think, uh, it'll just kind of stay stable for lack of a better phrase, just like the Ukraine, Russia hmm. situation.
0: There's always the danger that this conflict could escalate. Right now, what's happening is that there is a bit of stability. The Americans have dispatched at least two aircraft carrier task forces in the Mediterranean, one in the Mediterranean, one in the Arabian Sea kind of region, close to the Persian Gulf, but not quite there. So that they're kind of out of harm's way, but these are there. So the task force in the Mediterranean it can always target Hezbollah or Hamas if required. So that is there. So that thing is always at the back of their minds. You have another one in in the vicinity of the Arabian Sea region, somewhere there, which kind of, kind of is a reminder to Iran not to overplay their cards. So, they have tried to impose some stability through force in this manner. The, the problem is that Iran, Israel has been trying to kind of you know, make better relations, mend fences with certain of his neighbors, it has a reasonably healthy relationship with Egypt, for example, Israel and Egypt, okay, Uh, the Saudis want stability in the region, the UAE wants stability in the region, but there's always the problem that, you know, if there is too much of uh, Israeli action in a place like Gaza, for example, or or the West Bank of the River Jordan, which is on the other side of, of Israel. And if there are lots of civilian casualties, then there may be this public outcry that these nations leaders would not be able to suppress and they would have to act on it. If such a thing happens, then one could, so this is the extreme scenario, I'm telling you, an asymptotic scenario, extreme scenario. If something, if, if it goes beyond a certain point, if certain red lines are crossed, let's say like that, then one could see a scenario in which all the Arabic nations are forced to gang up and move on Israel. There's always the other angle which one doesn't talk about, which is Turkey. Now, Mr. Erdogan, he has imperial ambitions of his own. He has dreams and visions of reviving the Ottoman Caliphate, the Ottoman Empire. He is active in Syria, he is active in North Africa, The Turkish troops, they occupy about one third of, of Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean. So they also, and they obviously, Mr. Erdogan and his party, they express unstinting support for the Palestinian cause and all that. So there is this kind of dangerous neighborhood where everybody is kind of hoping nothing goes wrong, but everybody is prepared. If something happens, we go all in, that sort of thing. And the problem, the danger, the real flashpoint is that Israel is a nuclear power. They are an undeclared nuclear power, but everyone knows they have a number of nuclear weapons. Let's say three figures. And they have something called the Samson option which means that if all fails, if all the missile defenses fail, and if we are about to be overrun, they will not go down alone. They will take everybody down with them. And that is a nightmare scenario. So, yeah, it's it's a major flashpoint. And it, it all it just takes one misstep by somebody, one bad de- decision by some leader or just some some accidental occurrence that could trigger off something really bad. So the Middle East is in that, on that knife edge right now, dangerous situation. Hmm.
1: Uh, The reason I'm even asking you this question in the first place is because I think recently one of the cabinet ministers of Israel actually made a statement against Iran. Now the thing is, uh, I would argue that a cabinet minister in a phase like this is a diplomat in many ways. And the messages you send out to other nations at the time of strife are thought out. It can't just be an emotional outburst. Mm -hmm. So I believe he said something like... um, We'll come for you, Iran, or something like that. Just type uh, Israel ministers message to Iran. Did you see this? Statement? I haven't seen this. No, I have not.
0: So it's kind of like what the Turks do. They keep reminding Greece, we could turn up one night.
1: Yeah. Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu issues. To, oh, it was Netanyahu? Okay. Then that's even more intense than what I was saying. I believe it was just a, I thought it was a cabinet minister. Apparently it's the prime minister who mm-hmm. issues stern warning to Hezbollah and Iran do not test us. Israeli prime minister has delivered a forceful warning to both Hezbollah and Iran, cautioning them against any provocative actions. Oh, this is in October, something more recent, perhaps? Some, sorry, something recently has also happened mm-hmm. either way. My point is they are sending these strong messages to Iran. Obviously, the Mossad has some idea of something that's going to happen. These messages are coming out partially out of there. The PM of the country is like talking.
0: Mm -hmm. What is happening? Yeah. So there is this wonderful, there is this interesting, not wonderful, interesting dynamic between Iran and Israel. So Iran calls Israel, no, they call the US, Shaitan ibuzurg, the great Satan. And they consider Israel to be an extension of the US or the other way around, whichever way they look at it. So, the Iranian regime, they, well, their stated objective is to eradicate Israel from the map of the world. Okay, that's the kind of thing it is. So Israel sees Iran as an existential enemy. And I'm sure it's vice versa as well. So we have heard the news of various Iranian nuclear scientists dying, you know, mysteriously, mysterious deaths and all that. So it looks like Mossad has its hands in Iran. They even took out a nuclear reactor once. Osirak, in Iraq it was... Uh, I think it was the 80s or something. So the Israelis have these capabilities. They have a very powerful air force. They call it the IAF, the second IAF. We are the first IAF, they are the second IAF and so on. So there is this great amount of animosity, almost a kind of, uh, you know, it's it's like these, these two are mortal enemies. So whenever something happens via Hamas or via Hezbollah or via somebody else, the Israelis probably know and they assume that it's coming from Iran and they may take some actions to to you know retaliate against Iran itself possibly maybe in a covert manner maybe an overt manner if there's an overt war between Israel and Iran it could be a nuclear war. I'm not sure about war, where Iran stands on the nuclear scale but I would not be surprised if they have gone past the nuclear threshold by now because they had reasonably good uh, uranium enrichment technologies, you know, those uh, centrifuges and all, in under the Natanz in the Nathan's facility under a mountain and all that, and the the entire nuclear deal was designed to prevent Iran from going nuclear and giving them certain incentives not to do that. The nuclear deal collapsed many years ago. Maybe they have gone ahead with the enrichment program and they may have sufficient uranium by now, the the enriched form of uranium, weapons grade uranium, to have a few nuclear bombs. In the, if that is true. Then we have two nuclear powers, two undeclared nuclear powers. If they go to war, it's like all bets are off. you know,
1: yeah. Can you pull up the map of the Gulf yeah, yeah, uh, okay. no, no, that that one's fine. That one's good. Ah, uh, okay. so Israel, on the right is Jordan, Iraq, and then Iran. So for Iran to actually take on Israel, or vice versa? You would have to cross all these countries. Yeah. Israel not going to be able to cross all these countries. They may be able to. They may be able to. They can. Do you think they'd be able to cross Jordan?
0: Look, Israel, I believe, has F-35s, which is a stealth fighter. F-35s. They also have F-16s, which are a decent fighter. They can fly low or they could hack into the defenses of these nations, the radar defenses, if it's possible. Maybe it's possible. And just fly through and do it at night. No one sees. No one knows what happened. If your radars aren't active, you will not know what happened. It happens, you know, it's possible to do that. So they have good aircraft, they have good tactics, they have good strategies. They could be able to reach Iraq, Iran. Israel is good. It's a matter of half an hour, maybe a couple of hours, maybe an hour or so. Hmm. Supersonic speeds, you know.
1: When when you see this map as hmm. a geopolitical observer, what do you feel?
0: <laughs> it's, it's a loaded chessboard over here. It's a loaded chessboard. Every nation is like very, uh, certain nations like Saudi Arabia, Oman... The UAE, they desire peace. They do not want any conflict. They want development. They have so much money. They want to use it to further the nation and have a great future. But then you have the situation. The Israel versus the Arab nation situation has been around since the 1940s. Maybe before that. maybe before that. And then you have, then you have the Iran versus Saudi Arabia angle as well. Because one is a Shia nation, one is a Sunni nation. These two nations are at loggerheads. The Saudis are scared of Iran. The Iranians are scared of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has this massive military. They have this massive military budget. They acquire so many, so much weaponry and etc. All that from the US. The Iranians have Russia and China on their side. What? Who knows what they are acquiring. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So yeah, it's, it's a dangerous situation at the best of times over here. Hmm.
1: <sighs> I remember on one of our past podcasts, we tried breaking down what the actual cause of war is on a primal level. Hmm. And it almost always boils down to either religion or acquiring more land-slash-resources. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, the religion part, I understand. You know, one sect versus another, one religion versus another. What about this other side, land and resources? That has to be an angular if not for the Gulf countries, then for the countries, which are bigger geopolitical powers. Hmm. America, Russia, China. Uh, do you want to talk about that? From an Israel-Gaza- uh, conflict standpoint because I think at this point everyone knows just like the Ukraine and Russia war it's not just two countries at war. That is just not how wars have happened in the last 500 years?
0: 200 years at least. Did I, have I said something wrong? No you have not. So one has to understand these conflicts in the in the largest scheme of things the, the global scale. So if you look at the globe as a whole there is one dominant power right now. The empire the US empire, which is nothing but a continuation of the British empire, which occupied India for 200 years. So in, let's say, in 1958, let's say, the capital of the empire moved from London, UK, to Washington, DC. That's what happened. But the entity is the same. It's the same empire. So they control the world via what they call the rules-based world order and via their extensive military capabilities so the U.S. is the only superpower my definition of this of the term superpower means a nation or an entity that can intervene militarily anywhere in the world at 60 minutes notice only the U.S. can do that China or Russia cannot do that of course they can send missiles but that's not the point hold and occupy and, and control uh, as opposed to just destroy so the, only the U.S. can do it and the Americans have military bases all across the world including the Middle East. Japan is under permanent US military occupation. So is South Korea. There are more than 130 permanent US military bases in Japan. Maybe close to 100 or maybe more than 100 in South Korea. Lots of bases across the Middle East. You could say Israel is an American outpost or maybe you could argue the other way around is the truth, whatever it is, right? So all of this, and if you look at the lines on the map, if you look at the Middle East, the lines that divide nations, these are typically straight lines. Human Political boundaries never evolve like that. These are artificially drawn straight lines on maps. Somebody said, took a map and drew lines on them. But what that does is it divides communities, it divides ethnicities, it divides religions. what's wrong the, the wrong people that don't belong together together in a nation which causes civil wars. And that's actually perhaps, and you see the same thing in Africa. Africa has this history of civil war after civil war which actually is great if you want to neo-colonize the country and control it from far. Mm. So all of these conflicts, look, if you look at the history of the past 500 years, most of the conflicts have been driven by the West, initiated by the West or exploited by the West, initiated and sustained by the West. Okay, so that's how it is. So this is what we are seeing right now. It's nothing but a legacy of colonialism. If you look at how these nations were created, you know, the true shield state, i will not go into that, but you know, these lines of the map, how they emerged in the Middle East, for example. this was all done by the Western powers, mainly the British. The French had some involvement in all that. Okay, there was a division. Turkey was supposed to be carved out by the Western powers, didn't work, 1920s, a long story. So what are the, your question boils down to what are the triggers for war? What are the causes for conflict? War is nothing but the culmination of a conflict, but conflicts can simmer for a long time without actually going kinetic and ballistic. So, for example, there is this frozen civil war that we have in the subcontinent, India-Pakistan.
1: Hmm. What is
0: the cause of that? Right, There are religious causes, there are, there are geopolitical causes. The British exploited, they created, accentuated and exploited religious divisions within India, within ancient India, the subcontinent, partition India the way they wanted it and they favored one side over another and used what is temporarily the nation of Pakistan as a potent counterbalance to India and also as a geopolitical staging point for intrusion into Central Central Asia, Afghanistan and so on. So, and and that was done by the British, but it's been continued by the Americans. I mean, I would not be wrong at all to say that the Americans funded and financed Pakistani terrorism in India for several decades. Okay, that is absolutely 100% a fact. So that's what they've done. They've created conflicts, they've instigated conflicts and they've sustained those conflicts and exploited those conflicts for personal gain and that's what we are saying over here. So there are so many causes for conflict but it's typically, it boils down to human nature, to the basest of human desires. What do we want? What I mean, if you were a caveman, what would you want? You want more power. You want more people to obey you. You want more territory, more resources, more money. You want more, more, more. And we humans, at the end of the day, are a violent species. Look at our closest cousins, the chimpanzees, brutally violent. Now we have something called culture and civilization that kind of holds us back. Some of us do, (laughs) some of us don't. But yeah, that's how it goes. So yeah, there are so many causes, but it's it all boils boils down to greed, the desire to control more and more and to essentially own the own world. Uh, long ago, when we had one of the first conversations, I said geopolitics is a sport, the the objective is world domination and there are no rules. You make up rules as, as you go. That's how it goes. Hmm. Um in the movie Animal,
1: when they introduce Bobby Deol into hmm. the movie, mm-hmm everyone's attention span spikes up again. Okay. Which is why I want to introduce China for the same reason. In All this right. Podcast. China Where's the, the mo- Bobby Deol of this <laughs> podcast. Are you familiar with the Chad memes? I am actually. Okay. Yeah. In meme culture, Chad is like a badass guy who just <laughs> says it like it is. In a world with PR trained content creators, we have one Avijit Chavda who speaks his mind. <laughs> there will be people who disagree with you. There will be people who point fingers. But the fact that you're able to talk in a state of flow and you're able to openly express all these points and you casually drop a lot of these bombs. Like you just called India-Pakistan's rivalry a civil war situation. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you just randomly drop these bombs in the middle of your uh, thought essays. But I think that's why people gravitate towards your work. So, so uh, we got to talk about the world's Bobby Dewell from Animal, a.k.a. China. China. What's up?
0: what's up with china i mean yeah mr xi jinping is sitting pretty as as the emperor of the the current uh, dynasty the current dynasty is the chinese communist party so in china i mean when when historians talk about chinese history they talk about dynastic cycles you have dynastic cycles everywhere in the world but they talk about chinese dynastic cycles so you had various dynasties that rose and fell rose and fell whenever a dynasty False, it's typically because of a certain set of reasons, they call it the mandate of heaven. If you have the mandate of heaven, you stay in power. Once you lose the mandate of heaven, you fall from the grace of the gods and you lose power. The mandate of heaven is very simple, control. If you have the wherewithal to control your country and its people, you have the mandate of heaven. The moment you lose that, you're gone and your dynasty falls. So that's how empires rise and fall in China. And the current empire is the Chinese Communist Party. And they don't have hereditary emperors, they have emperors who are chosen by the current dispensation. So previously we had, who was it? We had Mr. Hu Jintao and then whoever it was and then now we have Mr. Xi Jinping who is the current emperor. And he has made himself essentially emperor for life, amended some of the rules and some of the constitution and all that. He's essentially an emperor for life. That's one, what one could say. As long as it lasts, he's emperor for life. Uh, as long as he lasts in power. So to stay in power, you have to be tough in China. And that's what Mr. Xi Jinping is doing. He's consolidating his power. He's, he has got rid of all the opposition, even imaginary opposition to himself. Lots of people have disappeared. What happened to Mr. Alibaba, Mr. Jack Ma? Where is he? We don't know. Uh, what happened to certain generals? What happened to their foreign minister? Disappeared from public life. One hopes they are somewhere. <laughs> Whatever, right? So that's how it is in China. Chinese politics is really, really tough. Dog eat dog world. And, and so China, as we know, is an aspiring superpower they aspire to replace and displace the us as the preeminent global, global power by what 2049 2050 somewhere around that time the 100th anniversary of the founding not the founding the the 100th anniversary of the chinese communist party taking over power in china roughly around 2050 i the date eludes me my dear reader my dear viewers can look it up for themselves right so that's what it is so the chinese have built up this mega economy through manufacturing and this This entire process was aided and abetted and midwifed by the U.S. And this is known history. Now there is this big rivalry between the Chinese and the Americans. The Americans have gone all out in recognizing China as their number one threat. And there's something called the Thucydides trap, which we'll not go into, but when we have an existing power and there's a rising power, they say that war is inevitable, which is a lesson that was drawn from the Peloponnesian War almost 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece. And the writer was Thucydides, Okay, digression. Okay, so so that's what it is. So China is this big power, but now they are facing challenges. They're facing challenges from the demographic perspective, from the economic perspective, the economy is slowing down. It's no longer galloping forward at 10% a year or 10% plus a year. Their figures say that it's around 5% something per year, but one has to take their figures with a few grains of salt. And then there is the demographic challenge, which is even bigger. The Chinese population, uh, the growth is slowing down. There's something called the TFR, Total Fertility Rate. To sustain a population at the current population level, you need a TFR of 2.1 per woman, which means on average, though every woman should produce 2.1 children. On average. Obviously, nobody can produce 2.1 children, but on average, that should be the figure. If you fall below 2.1, your population is going to start declining. Not just that, it's going to start aging as well. Now China has this weird, weird system that, that they enforce for a long time, the one-child policy. Chinese society is so stunted and weird. Think about this. Every Chinese person, take any Chinese person, he or she doesn't have any siblings, no brother, no sister, no cousins, no aunts, no uncles, no nieces, no nephews. It is such a strange society. And because of the one child policy, which is now, which has now been relaxed, but because of the policy, every family, every set of parents treats their children as their most valuable and precious position in the world. And they don't want to risk anything with their career, their lives, anything, right? So it's very difficult to convince them to send the children in the army, in the military, especially on front lines, very, very, you know, that sort of thing. And the population is aging. Right now, the median age, the average age, I believe, is around 38 or something, if I'm not mistaken. By 2100, it could be in the 60s. The average age could be in the mid-60s. So imagine, And the population by 2100 is projected to be half of what it is today, about 700 million. Imagine a nation of 700 million people whose average age is 65. The average person on the streets or everywhere else is 65 years old. Who's going to do everything? Okay. Who's going to provide the the, the uh, fighter, fighter pilots? Who's going to provide the soldiers on the front lines? Who's going to do all the science? Who's going to do all the industry, all the workers, all the laborers? Who's going to do that? Obviously, one could argue that artificial intelligence and robotics will solve the problems, but who knows? Come on, man. It's all far off. We don't have that today. So these are the dem- demographic and uh, ch- other challenges China is facing. The economy isn't doing that well anymore. There are big bubbles. There's the property bubble. And there's mar- lots of other things and all. There's there are big challenges in the banking system. Lots of debt has been given out. There are lots of empty mega cities that have been built. No one's living there. Lots of problems. But the Chinese are optimistic. The Chinese Communist Party is optimistic and can take the nation forward. But we have these big, well-known problems out there. Then there there is the expansionist, hegemonic mindset of the Chinese Communist Party. They have territorial disputes with all of their neighbors. Name one neighbor that they don't have a territorial dispute with and I'll wait. There's no one. Whether it's Japan, whether it's Taiwan, whether it is Kazakhstan, whether it is Russia, India, we all know. Bhutan, everybody, Afghanistan, they, they claim the Wakhan Corridor. They had these territorial disputes with Russia. Okay, The Usuri River uh, region. So it's in the Russian Far East and the Chinese Far North. So there were these clashes in 1969, the Usuri River clashes. Hundreds of soldiers died on both sides. The two nations nearly went to war. The Russians had decided to nuke China. And it was the Americans under his, Nixon and Kissinger who threatened them with retaliation. And that's how China was saved. So there was this boundary dispute, the large Usuri River boundary dispute that was resolved in the early 2000s. Now the Chinese have published a map last year, 23 in which they've reopened the border dispute and claimed certain of these territories as their own and they've also renamed certain regions in Russia to Chinese names. So the Chinese are playing the same old games they play with everybody, with Russia. Imagine this, today the world is looking at China and Russia as allies. I'll tell you what, they don't trust each other. The Russians don't, do not trust China. They have Iskander ballistic missiles on the border pointed at Chinese Uh, targets and there would be missiles aimed at Beijing as well and vice-versa. The Chinese will, I guarantee this, have missiles aimed at Moscow and other cities. Nuclear missiles, nuclear-tipped missiles. So that is the situation. It's it's a kind of uneasy uh, modus vivendi, one could say, um, an uneasy arrangement that they have right now but they do not trust each other. The number one threat to Russia is China and that's why the Russians are happy about India's rise and happy about the fact that India is not buckling in and giving in to Chinese bullying and whatever attempts they're doing. So, and then the Chinese are playing games in the Indian subcontinent. They're trying to woo Bangladesh. It's not working a lot. They are trying to open ports in our neighboring country, Myanmar, Burma. Okay. So the Chinese are playing these games, they are trying to woo Nepal, obviously our wonderful government from the 1990s, whoever was in power then, they toppled the Hindu monarchy of Nepal, which was very pro-India, and they well supported a civil war, a Maoist insurgency, Maoist civil war against the, the, the monarchy. The monarchy was toppled, we know what happened in the palace, uh, horrible story. And then the Maoists took, took over. And today, most of the politics, most of the, the dominant politicians in Nepal are pro-China and anti-India. Mo- many of them, not all, many of them. And so that's a deal. So the Chinese are trying to influence Nepal into being more and more of a satellite of China. Then they are bullying Bhutan into ceding territory to the, to the Chinese and, uh, in, and they will offer a negotiated settlement in which Bhutan has to kind of become more, more and more pro-China. Then there, the Chinese are trying to influence Afghanistan as well. We know the deal with Pakistan. The Chinese even have soldiers in Pakistan. In temporarily Pakistan occupied Kashmir, they are trying to woo Sri Lanka. They've done that. They've they. Uh, impose a debt trap on Sri Lanka when the Raja Paksas were in power. There is this dead port called called Hammandota where nobody comes. There's an airport that, 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 that nobody flies to. The Chinese have built that and taken the money and because the Sri Lankans were not able to repay the debt, the Chinese have taken that region, that that, that land on a 99-year lease and so on. And there's the Maldives situation. Then there's a new Maldivian government in power, which is pro-China. And Mr. Modi, Prime Minister Modi recently visited the Lakshadweep Islands so and he did not speak out Maldives at, at all. And the Maldivians uh, threw a hisse fit Uh, various elements in the Maldivian government and they criticized, they they issued statements that were were critical of Mr. Modi. For what reason? We have not spoken about you, but they went ahead and did that. And some of them even went ahead and uh, put out various anti-India and anti-Indians kind of sentiments. And the Maldives tourism industry has taken a big hit because of that. And the bilateral relationship has kind of Obviously, there's going to be consequences to such actions when it comes from members of the government. So we have that. So the Maldives are kind of, uh, the government is right now kind of pro-China. So the Chinese are playing these games. They have that that belt and road initiative, which was supposed to be the great vehicle that would propel China to superstardom, to to superpower status. It's not working out. First of all, uh, you know, it's it's not, many nations are pulling out of it recently. uh, Italy pulled out of it pull out of the BRI. Uh, there's the Ukraine conflict going on because of which the BRI infrastructure cannot be run through Ukraine. So it's kind of, kind of not working right now. Um, I don't see it working in the long term. They also had the Maritime Silk Road. Even that is kind of dead in the water. So these great Chinese initiatives and dreams are not quite fructifying. Obviously, they will try their best to revive this and make it work. They have the what they call the string of pearls, which is, uh, 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 you know, a network uh, infrastructure building spree to to encircle India with with Chinese ports, you know, with with Chinese assets in Pakistan, in 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 Gwadar, in uh, the Maldives, in Sri Lanka, in Burma, and so on. They also have a listening post in the Cocoa Islands, just north of the Andaman Nicobar Islands. They have a port in Djibouti, which they operate, and so on. So the Chinese are trying to encircle India at sea. They're trying to encircle India in the Himalayan region as well. So the Chinese games are continuing. Right? But India is rising and as long as India manages this situation and ensures that we don't get embroiled in a major conflict, military conflict with anyone next 20 years, they're going to be unstoppable. And the longer India goes and rises, see India's growth is the largest in the world right now. India is the only economy in the entire world that is not under any threat whatsoever of a recession. Hmm. India is rising. It's growing at 6 plus, 7 plus percent per year, depending on the quarter and all that. Sometimes, hopefully, we'll we'll exceed that. Hmm. As India's economy keeps growing, and India's, uh, as your economy grows, your military might also grows. The longer it grows, the more difficult it is for China to tangle with India. Because it is going to guarantee that they're going to get a bloody nose and they're going to lose some of their hard-gained assets and all that. So that's the situation right now. Uh, The Chinese are... Well, they would like to rise. And, they, they, you know, they have these commentators on social media. Obviously, they have banned Twitter and Google and whatever. But they do use Twitter and all that. And Twitter somehow allow, x x allows Chinese diplomats to use the, the, the platform freely and all that. So there's a lot of Chinese propaganda out there. They portray the West as this evil hegemonic power, which I would not totally disagree with. I would actually mostly agree with that. We know the history. But they... They try to portray India as an accomplice and an accessory to what the West is doing. That's the kind of spin they are putting on India's foreign policy, which could not be further from the truth. And they said that India is anti-China because of the West. Excuse me, you are claiming our territory. You've gone to war with us at least twice. Thrice. 62, we lost. 67, we beat China. 87, we beat China again. Nobody talks about these, you know, these clashes. And the Chinese are claiming Arunachal Pradesh, they have they they occupy Aksai Chin, they have their footprints over POK, and they are calling us the aggressor. So that's the spin the Chinese always put. So China is a problem for India. If the Chinese behave themselves, it, everything would be good, but it doesn't work. It's not, that's not been their attitude. So when it comes to the India-China issue, there's only one solution. The only long-term solution is that Tibet should be a free nation. And the Chinese... Involvement in Tibet should end. There is no threat of that happening anytime soon. At least the next 20 years, Tibet is going to be under Chinese occupation. And we know they've changed the demographics in Tibet. The the Tibetan people are now a minority in their own land. So that's the situation, but the only way to ensure peace between India and China is for Tibet to be free. India and China have always had the best of relations, extremely friendly relations. India has been a net exporter of culture and civilization to China. What is the Chinese influence in India today? Nothing. What's the Indian influence in China? It's everywhere, all over the place, especially historically, right? So India has been a giver of culture and civilization and learning and wisdom and knowledge to China. And we have never attacked China. And not in 2000, how old is China? Let's say 3000 years. Okay, let's say it's three and a half thousand years if you want to be nice to them. They have existed as a civilization for three and a half thousand years. We have existed forever, not once have we had a conflict, India and China. It's only after they captured Tibet and we allowed that to happen. Mr. Nehru, the great, magnificent Mr. Nehru, made this happen. So it's only after the 1950s that India and China have had a temporarily shared border. And that's why we are two large powers. Obviously there's gonna be conflict if we have a shared border. So that's the situation. Long term, we need Tibet to be independent again. And that's the only way we can have peace between India and China. So China is a very big factor It's going to be a very major power, at least till 2050, next two, three decades, definitely. But it's a power in decline. And so is the US, actually. And you spoke about Bangladesh. So uh, Bangladesh and India, we have excellent relations in the past few years. The the, the lady, the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, Sheikh Hasina, she has, how many elections has has she won? I think three. And she's just won the fourth one just now. And the Americans wanted a regime change in Bangladesh. They wanted the opposition to come to power so that we can have two Pakistans on both sides, at least a nation that can act like another Pakistan on the other side. So when she was not in power, when the opposition, the current opposition was in power, you had chaos in on the india bangladesh shared border. You had, obviously we still have some of it now, but you had this rampant immigration into India, illegal immigration. You had these terrorist insurgent separatist groups which were given shelter in Bangladesh that were wreaking havoc in the northeast region of India, the far east of India, which everyone calls the northeast. And it was overall an anti-India regime that we had. After Mrs. Hasina came to power, the relations have improved significantly. There's a lot of bonhomie between the new nations. There's a lot of cooperation on so many different fronts. The incredibly convoluted border between India and Bangladesh with enclaves and exclaves and enclaves and exclaves within an enclaves and exclaves, all that nonsense. It's been resolved Mostly. So we have a tremendous amount of, of progress on that front. There are still certain things that obviously can be resolved and worked on in the future. But overall, the, the relationship between the two nations has been extremely robust the past uh, several years because of the stability of government that we had, Sheikh Hasina and Mr. Modi. And now the Americans were saying that the, they were essentially pressuring, pressurizing Mrs. Uh, Sheikh Hasina to dim it office and to give in to the opposition. And the opposition had gone on this violent rampage in Bangladesh and they were, you know, they were putting pressure through, through street power on the government to abdicate power. Well, the election results just came in last week and she has won again. So it's a good step for the stability of the subcontinent for the future of Bangladesh because she has done she has helped the economy grow a lot. And for also it's a great step forward for the continuing robustness of India-Bangladesh relations. So it's great. The Americans wanted a regime change and after she won the elections they put out a statement on their website before the, the, the state department website saying that this was not a free and fair election but we will now move forward and, and work with the current government so that's the kind of attitude they've had when there is a regime change in Pakistan when Imran Khan is thrown into jail and somebody else comes to power we don't even know who that guy is the Americans are fine with that oh yeah great job great job but when there's an election in Bangladesh they're saying it's not free and fair double standards is the name Of Mm. their game. Which is why nobody respects them or trusts them anymore. Mm. That's the deal. So that's the thing about Bangladesh.
1: Okay. Uh, I still want to reverse you back into China a little bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, We spoke about three very important geopolitical events that are happening at the start of 2024. The ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict. The conflict in the Gulf. And then the African uh, Niger uh coup that you spoke about at the start of this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of affects the geopolitical power that France holds in that belt. Uh, I remember in one of our older podcasts from last year, or the year before that, you spoke about how we're probably heading into a three pronged world, like a three, like three different teams, multipolar world. Multipolar world. Yeah. Uh, one pole would be Russia and China. Mm-hmm. The other pole would be America NATO, etc. And the third pole is possibly a collaboration between India and France. Hmm. So I'm beginning a whole new chapter here. Mm -hmm. Beginning with what China's possible viewpoint is on these three conflicts which are important right Mm -hmm. now. The Gulf conflict, the European conflict and uh, the African
0: situation. Right. So the Chinese have significant interest in Africa. They want to use Africa as a place from the, which they get raw materials to fuel their economies. You know, copper, iron, coal, rare earth minerals and so on and so forth. They want all that raw in raw form. They will then take to the country, process and then turn into finished products. So Africa is just a, a place where they can get resources from. Mm-hmm. That's how they see Africa.
1: Modern day colonialism.
0: You could say that, but even the Europeans and the, uh, the the West is doing the same thing, hmm. maybe even worse, you know, in hmm. a much worse form, perhaps. So the, the Chinese view Africa as that. So there is this proxy conflict going on there between the East and the West, China and Russia on one side and France and the US and whatever else on the other side. And then the poor of Af- the unfortunate African nations and the people are caught in the crossfire in between and they are their suffering is endless. Hmm. That is the deal with Africa. Now, when it comes to the Middle East conflict, the Chinese obviously are taking the side of Gaza and the Palestinian people. And they even have this, like I said, the port in Djibouti, which is in the Horn of Africa, near the Strait of Bab al Mandeb between the, the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea, that region. They have a port there, and they have warships there. And they have been, you know, doing this, these anti-piracy patrols. But when a ship is taken over by pirates, the Chinese just sit and watch. They refuse to heed the distress calls. They just sit and watch. And the Indians go in, and rescue ships from pirates. That's what—that's the kind of role the Chinese are playing there. There's an element of mischief making there, an element of you know glee that yeah, look at the the misfortune that's befalling you. That's the role the Chinese are playing, which is no role at all—just observers and not doing the duty as anti-piracy operatives. So that's the deal. So when it comes to the Middle East conflict, the Chinese are taking the side of. Uh, of the, the, the Hamas, the Hezbollah, because they have ties, like I said, in big investments in Iran. The Chinese have also made huge uh, trade deals with Saudi Arabia and probably even the UAE because there's a lot of oil there and they would like to enjoy that. They would they need that to fuel their economy. And the Saudis obviously are, are happy to do business with whoever is willing to buy their oil. So, there is the element of that there. And the Saudis and the UAE are now part of BRICS. So is uh, Ethiopia, which is one could say a relatively minor power comparatively. And there is Egypt, which is one of the major North African nations. And well, it's the bridge between Asia and Africa. India has excellent relations with Egypt. Now we're talking about China. So that's the Chinese angle in the Middle East region. They are anti-Israel, anti-West, pro-Iran, pro-Hizbollah, pro-Houthis, pro-Hamas. That's the deal. And they are not doing their duty as anti-piracy operators they're just sitting and watching that's what that's the thing when it comes to the war in Europe the 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 uh, Ukraine conflict the Chinese are on the side of Russia so the Chinese covet the the plentiful gas that can flow out of Russia Russia has Russia is what we call an autarky an autarky is a nation that has everything within its own territory doesn't need to import anything from anywhere. The the, the Russians don't need to import iron ore. They don't need to import bauxite, the the ore of coal. They don't need to import oil. They don't need to import gas. They don't, uh, petrochemicals, agriculture, everything they have, they don't need anything. So Russia is an autarky. China is not. So the Chinese would like to, 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 you know, acquire this plentiful Russian hydrocarbons, gas, oil, all that, whatever other minerals, resources they have. And they would like to turn Russia into a client state, a vassal state. My favorite word, vassal, my viewers will know that. So they would like to turn Russia into a vassal state. And Russia needs a pressure release wall, which probably is India. If India can, to some extent, counterbalance China, it's good for Russia. So the Chinese are on the side of Ukraine. Uh, um, so I'm sorry, Chinese are, are on the side of Mr. Putin in the Ukraine war. They're anti-Zelensky. Zelensky is, well, so Ukraine is a proxy war between Russia and, the, and NATO. NATO is owned by the U.S., so the Americans wanted to turn this into a battle down and, and destroy Russia's fighting strength. Never happened. And instead of that, r- Ukraine got destroyed. And well, who knows how it, it goes on, one hopes the conflict ends sooner or later because it's been terrible for the people of Ukraine. They've lost all their men. They've lost their young people and, and so on. Yeah. So that's the Chinese involvement in Europe. They want, obviously, they had lots of designs and, and, and great ambitions for Europe. They wanted to interlink Europe and Eurasia with China this great infrastructure network, road, rail, all that shipping. They even bought, uh, you know, ports in various parts of, of, of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, in Greece, in, in, in Israel, and so and so on. But India has also bought ports in these regions. So there's this thing also going on there. So that's the Chinese involvement in Africa, in the Middle East, and in Europe overall.
1: Um, they're still the
0: manufacturing hub of the world. They still are. Yes. Making money there. So, yeah. So, there is this uh, this initiative called China Plus One. So, most of these nations that uh, that use China as a manufacturing hub are now diversifying their options. They want more options. So, they want China. China is there. But they want China Plus One. So, they're looking at one more nation from where they can source their manufacturing. That could be Vietnam. Mm. That could be Thailand. That could be India. That could be Bangladesh. Whatever. Now, it's a great opportunity for these nations, especially for India. Mm. right so we we are taking certain initiatives in that direction and obviously there's the taiwan factor which we have not spoken about taiwan is this big uh, semiconductor manufacturing hub tsmc this major company which manufactures so much of the world's semiconductors is based in taiwan the americans have ensured that there is a new major mega plant of tsmc in arizona one more is coming up in saxony i believe in germany so that will give them enough redundancy because they own germany the americans own germany germany by the way so once that is done, once these two plants become fully operational, Taiwan loses whatever real importance it had and then even if the Chinese try to invade it, they can just the Americans can make sure that everything is destroyed and Chinese inherit nothing but wasteland.
1: Yeah, I was watching a documentary about the current situation in Taiwan. This is an election year for them. Yes, again, yeah. The party and power hmm. is anti-China. Mm-hmm. The the opposition party is pro-China. Mm-hmm. No one's able to predict who's going to be elected. Yes. Uh, therefore, the citizens are in a state of turmoil. At least that's what was shown in the documentary. And this could totally be Western branding and PR because it is media at the end of the day. And all media is twisted based on the emotion of human beings. But either way, what was shown in the documentary was that people in Taiwan are preparing for war. Hmm. They're taking these classes Hmm. for self-defense and at least that's the message I'm sure that represents a sliver of truth if not the whole truth at least. Will we see another hot war based conflict in that part of the world?
0: There's always the possibility over there. See, recently Mr. Xi went to the US. He met with Mr. Biden and apparently Mr. Xi told Mr. Biden that Taiwan's reunification with China is inevitable. It's going to happen one way the other. It could be peaceful reunification, which they actually apparently desire, or it could be reunification through other means, which obviously means an actual ballistic uh, kinetic conflict. Let's look at the two scenarios. The Chinese have been squeezing Taiwan, so to say. See, the Taiwan Strait is a small narrow channel, just like you could kind of compare it with the English Channel, the strait of water between British islands and Europe, kind of like that, okay? And the Chinese are a major mega- navy numerically the largest navy in the world and they always can these days they they routinely conduct naval exercises all around taiwan they they have fighter planes fighter jets overfly taiwan all the time violate taiwanese airspace and all that it's it's become a routine matter now so they can if they want launch an invasion obviously the taiwanese defenses are very well prepared and the chinese would have lots of casualties and they would lose a lot of assets and it's not easy it's not as easy as, easy, as, easy as it sounds but this this, what this does is, is it pressurizes the people of Taiwan. It, it puts them under the siege mentality. It lowers the morale of the people of Taiwan. It's always like constant pressure. Chinese military exercises, Chinese live-firing exercises into Taiwanese waters, Chinese fighter planes overflight Taiwanese airspace, sometimes even the island sometimes. And there is this barrage of Chinese language propaganda aimed at the Taiwanese people. And there is this interconnectivity between the two economies as well now. You know, there are lots of Chinese companies in Taiwan. Lots of Taiwanese are employed by Chinese companies on the mainland and so on. So the Chinese are trying to, you know, do it By other means, not through war, but at the end of the day, if all fails, they may possibly perhaps go to war if they calculate that the the equations will work out in their favor. Obviously, the Americans would like to use that opportunity if the war actually happens to damage China as much as possible, but who knows. So I hope a hot war doesn't happen. The Chinese may be able to achieve their objectives without having to resort to war, but that is a long, small, drawn-out process.
1: Would you say that one of the ways to predict the future from a geopolitical perspective even political perspective, generally, is the policies put forward by governments that are in power. Mm -hmm. Fair, fair to say, fair to say, uh, one, what would you say are the policies of the American government? Which brings me to the whole American election situation, because I don't know exactly how a presidential style system works in terms of policy. Okay. It's one guy and his team in power and then the narrative about the deep state and all show. But if Trump gets elected or a boy, Mr. Vivek. Vivek Ramaswamy gets elected, how much will that change American policy? Therefore, how much will that affect geopolitics? And then I'd also finally like to head into our India chapter and Dr. Jai Shankar and the Modi government policies. But me from a policy perspective, also a bit of a narrative about America mainly perhaps China, and then India.
0: Right. So when it comes to the US, they have this global domination. Their their so-called rules bills, world order, which is like the so-called international law. It's what dominates, uh, you know, trade and behavior of nations and all that worldwide they also have this extensive naval network and military bases all over the world so that's how they dominate the system the chinese are trying to create their own system maybe a parallel system which is the bifurcation of the world order the chinese and the russians together with iran and certain other nations against the, the american system and we are seeing the emergence of multipolarity, which is the global south which is kind of led by india we have ensured that the african union becomes part of the g20 which is now the g21 all that so what's the deal with america and taiwan and china So the Americans, like I said, are making sure that they are moving TSMC to the US, to US soil and to German soil, which means they seem to be preparing for the possibility that the Chinese may invade Taiwan, in which case the Chinese should get nothing. And they will still have TSMC, which means that semiconductor manufacturing, all that will continue on US and German soil. So they seem to be beginning to go towards the, let's say, mindset That an invasion of Taiwan may be inevitable, or maybe a non military takeover of. Taiwan by China may be inevitable. Maybe not today, maybe not in the next three years, maybe in the next 10 years. But that seems to be the direction in which the American thought process seems to be going. Now, like you said, that the geopolitical future of the world can kind of be gauged by the various policies that governments have and various powers have. Because you can take a certain set of policies and kind of extrapolate where it goes in the future. Mm. And that kind of tells you what their envisaged future world order is like. Right? So if you look at all that, you can see that the American footprint seems to be slowly shrinking away. Okay. They are not building so many more warships. If you look at their arms production, their, their production of, of ammunition, missiles, you know, machine gun rounds and whatnot, it's kind of not uh, where it should be for a global geopolitical power. The Russians produce way more arms and ammunition, ammunition than the Americans. Maybe the quality may not be as good as that, as the American quality, like they say, the, like the West likes to say, but quantity has a quality of its own, like Joseph Stalin said. And yeah, so that's the deal. So the American footprint over the world seems to be slowly shrinking. Obviously, one cannot take them lightly. They are the major power, second largest nuclear arsenal after Russia, but overall, they have the biggest footprint all over the world in terms of military bases and ports and, you know, military presence, naval presence, all of that. America is still the largest power. It's kind of Rome in decline, kind of in the beginning phase of decline. And there is a cultural factor in the US, you know, American exceptionalism is gone. They have opened the southern border. the they, Last year, I don't know what the statistics are. If I may be wrong, don't quote me. But possibly over more than 300, possibly more than 3 million illegal immigrants were allowed into the US by the government. And they were um, relocated to various parts of the US. So that, I mean, imagine, a, I mean, it's obviously illegal. It's illegal. You have to come through the proper process and through through the proper channels. And if the government is allowing illegality, what does it it mean? Corruption.
1: From the outside, looking in from a long-term perspective, and please, I would actually like for you to disagree with me uh, when it comes to this, but I think you're going to agree with me. Hmm? Uh, From the outside looking in, it seems like the way to fix America's future is to actually have a completely fresh perspective ideally young perspective on leadership, which is not Biden or Trump. Trump is too chaotic. Again, we're we're generalizing a very large argument into one sentence. So I'm sure there are nuances, which I don't want to get into. Biden's too old. Uh, As Indians, we get shown a lot of Vivek Ramaswamy, who seems like a very um, articulate, intense, perhaps controversial, strong-willed, but articulate guy. Uh, who's also got a great education behind him. And somewhere as Indians, you, you can you can see certain layers of his Indianness. Maybe that's why we feel an affinity for him. Uh, and there's that other young girl, uh, Latin American, I can't remember her name.
0: Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez.
1: AOC. AOC. These are the two names that pop out in terms of young uh, leaders. What do you think of this whole next phase of American politics?
0: Right. US politics is very interesting. Really interesting. First, let's take a... Not 10,000 mile look at, meter or whatever, look at the US politics, the, the political system. It's a two-party system. You have the Democrats, you have the Republicans. A two-party system in a democracy is one step above a one-party state like China or North Korea. So it's not really a democracy because these two parties, the Republicans and Democrats, they have the exact exact same foreign policy. Exact same foreign policy warmongers starting new wars, the republicans will use bombers, you know, strategic bombers that are completely black, the democrats will use the same bombers painted in rainbow colours, but they are going to drop the same bombs on you. So they have the exact same foreign policy. Now we have Mr. Biden who is currently the president. He clearly is not capable of running a country, to put it mildly. His vice president is Ms. Kamala Harris she doesn't have the mental mileage and bandwidth to run a country. So the question is, who is running the country? The country is running itself, is it? Somebody is running the country. Who is it? That's what they perhaps possibly call the deep state. You know, the, the defense establishment, the foreign policy establishment, all that, the Pentagon and whoever is in there, this amorphous, fuzzy, obscure mass of individuals and maybe, maybe whatever it is, right? So the nation doesn't <laughs> really need a president to run itself. This is, by now, it should be clear. Now we have this new election coming up, end of this year, end of 24, somewhere around that time. Who are the big candidates? I think I, I think everybody would agree that Mr. Biden is doubtful. He's way too old to run for president again. Miss Kamala Harris would be not a great candidate. I think most people would agree because nobody would vote for her. So I expect that the Democrats will somehow or the other put up a new candidate, whoever that is. I doubt it's Miss Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez. She is a lighter version of miss kamala harris in my opinion i don't think it'll be her so who it, who who will it be i'm not really sure but that's one one side of the story that's the democrats the other side we have the republicans so the big heavyweight is mr trump mr trump is the big guy he uh he's, he's above 50% of the polls so when it comes to the republican voters over 50% are supporting mr trump then we have uh, nikki haley who has a reasonable uh, amount of uh, she's Number three or something, I'm not sure, whatever it is right now. We have uh, Mr. Ron DeSantis. And like we said, we discussed, we have Mr. Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek Ramaswamy is the sharpest of the lot, the most articulate of the lot, the youngest of the lot. He has taken everybody down, including his own party people. Nikki Haley has openly called her corrupt and he has shown how she is corrupt and nobody can deny that. The only person he has refused, he has steadfastly refused to criticize is Mr. Trump. So if you look at mr ramaswamy he's either angling for a vice presidential run along with mr trump as the presidential candidate or he is angling for a 2028 presidential run he's putting in the groundwork right now because he's very young he's rich he's very articulate he can destroy any opposition he can destroy any reporter any news media person or any of the other candidates in running with him against him so that's the deal with him now when it comes to mr ramaswamy vivek Ramaswamy. Indians love him, obviously, because he's Indian, right? He's Indian, he's Desi. uh, And he's not a Christian convert, he's a Hindu. And he he says he's proud to be Hindu. The question is, is America ready for a Hindu president or vice president? I think America is not ready for that. I don't think so. And even if, let's say, he succeeds and becomes the vice president, or let's say even the president, will it change anything? It will change nothing. America's foreign policy doesn't ever change. It remains the same. When Mr. Trump was in power, he tried to change certain things. Did it work out? He wanted a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Where's the wall? He tried his best, but he was an outsider, and they made him fail. They ensured none of his big initiatives even gets off the ground. He is an outsider. Now he may again become the presidential nominee, candidate for the for the Republicans, but let's see how far that goes. Similarly, Mr. Ramaswamy is not a politician. He's not a career politician. Okay. So he's also kind of an outsider and he's an interesting outsider. So let's say, see what role he plays. He's kind of a cannonball running through the whole thing and mm. taking down people and uh, let's see how far he goes. So that's how I see it. I don't see uh, the US as a nation and as a, as a society being ready for a Hindu president or vice president yet. If you are brown, you may wor- it may work for you. Ms. Kamala Harris is half Indian, half uh, whatever else, whatever she is, mixed race, uh, but uh, she's not Hindu. And she became the... But she, <laughs> she portrays herself as a black person, more or less, right? Uh, we had Tulsi Gabbard who was there in the 20, 60, 20, 20 elections. She couldn't get far at all. They kind of kicked her off the... She was not even allowed to debate uh, in the Republican primaries, if I am not mistaken. And Ramaswamy, Mr. Ramaswamy, he's doing well. He is... Uh, yeah, he's very impactful, but he is now, right now, polling around 1, one or 2%. So that's not... Great polling figures, you know? So yeah, it's it's challenging for him. I think he's looking at a long-run kind of thing, a long-term kind of perspective. That's where I see it.
1: Okay, fair. Uh, and none of this matters from a geopolitical perspective. No. Geopolitics is going to keep going on. It's just going to carry forward from the momentum of everything that we've spoken about. Yeah. Any signing of notes,
0: sir? Uh, we have the Indian elections coming up. Oh, it's, it's damn. A big, It's a big in- event for India. Let's
1: cancel that any signing of notes question. <laughs>
0: Tell me, sir. So. Yeah, so we have the Indian general elections coming up. Mr. Modi mm. has been in power for two terms and he has announced himself as the prime ministerial candidate from the BJP. Mm. And uh, sometime this year, probably in the first half of this year, we will have the elections. Last time, 20, 2019, the election results were announced in May and the elections were held over March and April, roughly, I would say, roughly. And most likely, we're going to have the same sort of thing, most likely, maybe a month or two here and there. So it's going to be announced pretty soon. I expect we're already in January. We're going to have an announcement reasonably soon. The election commission will make the announcement. And then we're going to have the election campaigning cycle. It's the entire mood of the nation, the entire tempo, everything, the entire outlook, everything will change once the election campaigning cycle starts. So... Uh, from where we are setting from how things have gone obviously mr modi has done a terrific job of taking the country forward there's this tremendous vitality in the nation this tremendous upsurge of self-confidence among indians the indian economic growth is there for all to see india's foreign policy is excellent india is making inroads and excellent robust relations with all kinds of countries near and far great neighborhood policy great extended neighborhood policy Great policy at counterbalancing the major powers in the world and so on. So India is doing tremendously well. There is nothing I can fault the current government for. Obviously, there are certain irritants, certain problems. There is the extremely unfortunate situation in Manipur right now. Half of Manipur is under foreign occupation, whether people know it or not. And well, there's a geopolitical angle entirely there also. That, That is a whole different story. I'll not go into that. But yeah. So that is something that's going to be resolved over time and India will resolve it. But yeah, that's the situation. So we have all this going on. I mean, overall, it's a very positive story for India. India is doing very well. So I, from my perspective, I would like to see Mr. Modi come back to power. Call me whatever you want, Bhakt, Sangi, whatever. I don't care. I, that's what I am. I want Mr. Modi to come back to power and I fully expect him to indeed come back to power and the I think even Modi haters expect him to come back to power.
1: <laughs> that's the flavor of the nation I mean
0: that's just the way it is Yeah, he has done such a tremendous job his overall government has done so well I mean, look at the number of airports we've built we have doubled the number of airports in, in the last 10 years the number of new railway lines we are building up the the infrastructure we are building the, the, the highways we are building look at the economic growth we are coming up with a new semiconductor plant foundry in Gujarat we are coming up with new ports in various parts of the country there's a transship, major transshipment port coming up in the undermans. we are focusing on Lakshadweep for tourism we have we have finally brought peace in Jammu and Kashmir we have given the people of Ladakh their own due I mean overall it's progress everywhere if you look at the macro perspective overall the growth story is very very impressive very few nations have been able to do such a thing in just 10 years so. we
1: have an identity on the world stage now
0: we do. We do. I mean, look at the last uh, summit, the G20 summit. I yes. mean, it was almost, it was considered to be almost impossible to achieve consensus in the final declaration and we pulled it off through tremendous diplomacy.
1: Generally, even when I travel in the country, just the flavor of the couple of decades that we've had, or the one decade that we've had till now, yes, is uh, pretty pro Modi. Yes, I agree. Uh, the, the question is who's going to succeed him and I think we've discussed this in the past. It's between Nitin Gadkari, Yogi, and
0: uh, I
1: don't, third name that had come Dr. up. Dr. Jashankar, was it? I believe so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's take that up again. Look, the most important thing, the, the most vulnerable time for a nation is when there is a, a handover of power. Okay, that process, the succession process is the most vulnerable time for a nation. You, There are so many, countless examples in history. If the succession goes wrong, Whatever you've built up over the past three decades, five decades, whatever, it's, it can dissipate itself. It can disappear in just a few years. Look at the USSR. Look at, I mean, so, so many examples. So the succession, the process of succession is critical for the political stability and continuity of a nation and everything else it has. So, um, So whoever is next has to take over from what Mr. Modi has been doing and take it further. Amplify that. And go even further than what, what Mr. Modi has done. So Mr. Modi is, is laying a foundation, a base for the nation. And then we have to take use that as a springboard and go forward. So we need the right leader for that. So, Who's the right leader is a question. So AC,
1: if someone held a gun to your head and said, pick one of these three.
0: Pick one had a, with a gun to my head, I would say Yogi.
1: Yeah? I'd say Yogi. I'd probably say Nitin Gadkari, But that's because I've podcasted with him and I got to know the okay. energy. How do you say Yogi?
0: Look, there has to be a certain amount of unpredictability, a certain amount of X-factor, a certain amount of vitality and from a leader's perspective and the most important factor is the direct one-to-one connection with the man and woman and child on the street. You need that charisma. A leader, it is essential for a leader to have that. Mr. Modi has that. He's probably one of the most charismatic leaders in the world. When he speaks, it resonates with each individual. He's not speaking to a crowd. He's speaking to you. That's how it feels when you watch. And very few leaders have that. I believe Mr. Mo, Mr. Yogi has that. You know, you can be a tremendous policy maker. You can be a tremendous executor on the, on the roads, whatever you've been told, you do it and you do a brilliant, brilliant job at that, but you may not be able to connect with the public. And that is the vital factor in a leader, in, in, a, leader, in a leader's popularity and longevity the ability to connect one-to-one with each individual out there in the public. And very few leaders have that. Mr. Modi has that. Mr. Yugi also has that. I cannot see anybody else right now who has that. See, Dr. Jaishankar is a tremendous diplomat, probably the most impactful diplomat in the world today. That is his area of expertise, diplomacy. I believe, I, I I may be wrong, but I think perhaps if you were to ask him, would you like to be prime minister? He would say, no, I would like to take India's foreign policy forward because that is my core competence. And that's what I would like to leave a legacy behind.
1: Another epic episode. This is the 2024 special. I'll see you in six months. I need some time to study and get back to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so Had
1: fun. That was the episode for today, ladies and gentlemen. It's probably like the 20th episode we've recorded with AC. I highly recommend you go and check out all the other AC episodes that we've done in the past. Some spectacular content. If you enjoyed the kind of chemistry we were sharing, if you enjoyed the conversation, Please check out our past episodes with Abhijit Chowda. Make sure you subscribe to his channel as well. Check out his channel as well. This man is an infinite well of content, be it science, history, or geopolitics. He's going to be back soon. Next time, we've planned a more fun episode for you guys. The Renvi Show will be back soon. AC will be back on The Renvi Show even sooner. Am I morphing time? I don't know because that's what the next episode's about. It's a science special with AC. But for now, keep supporting. BRS.